Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161DM211, Book Reviews, I, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 323, October the 5th, 1994. This evening I shall, as so many of you have requested over and over again, uh, do some book reviews. The book I especially wanted to uh, review I have misplaced, but I'll return to that on another occasion. And Mark Rushduni is with me to uh, comment from time to time on some of the books I review. The first one is a book that came out in 1984 and was reprinted this year, 1994. The title of it is The Blunder Book, Colossal Errors, Minor Mistakes, and Surprising Slip-Ups That Have Changed the Course of History. The author, M. Hirsch Goldberg. Now, the uh, book is full of amusing and interesting and sometimes sad accounts of various blunders that have marked history and uh, either have been important or are interesting. I found this one very interesting on the Mayflower. And I'm quoting, one episode about the Mayflower bears telling for what it says about those who would flirt with error. The nine and a half weeks of the voyage were marked by storms and squalls, and many of the passengers became seasick. A young crew member, however, made repeated fun of the ill, mocking them and predicting half of them would not survive the trip in which case, he told them, he would gladly bury them at sea and help himself to their possessions. Rebukes by those on board could not stop his laughing and jeering. Shortly before land was sighted, the only death among the passengers occurred, but the offensive sailor did not see this. Before the Mayflower reached the halfway point, the jokester himself became ill and died. He was the only fatality among the crew, unquote. This comes from uh, a book titled The Mayflower by Kate Caffrey, published in 1974. Now, an interesting book, as I have mentioned more than once, could be written about providential things in history especially in our history and the history of Christendom. This certainly is one that uh, bears telling and retelling. But how many of you ever read this in a textbook? Great, well, great battles. If you read about battles, very often history books will make a point of noting um, a particular lieutenant or a sergeant took uh, some initiative on his own and he decided a particular hill had to be seized. For instance, at Gettysburg, I believe it was at Little Round Top, 
that that was seized early on by a subordinate officer, and that decision really turned the tide of the battle. And you have to conclude that either the battles change the course of history, and if these are chance occurrences, then history is either a series of chance occurrences and random fates, or God controls it, and God controls the little events which control all of history. I think that's a very, very important point. History is not accidental. It is providential. We may not always understand the uh, providence of God, and sometimes we might wish that it would go differently. But the providence of God totally governs everything in history. Well, this fact I found interesting. Uh, it was Alfred Lord Tennyson who wrote the famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. It was a horrible event because a stupid, mixed-up order by incompetent men led the Light Brigade to charge a point that was invulnerable for them, and it led to needless deaths. Now that episode, Mark, is very important in history because before that newspapers did not much shape public opinion. Only a limited number of people read them. Journals of opinion, going back to uh, uh, the Tatler and the Spectator, had some influence, but not the newspapers. But with the Crimean War, the whole impact of newspapers became very different. They carried the story of the light, the charge of the light brigade. It changed things in London. After that, incompetent generals and officers were weeded out. Well, oh, by the way, is the charge of the light brigade in textbooks anymore, the poem by Tennyson? Not that I've noticed lately. That I haven't seen all of them, but I, I don't. I haven't seen it. When I went to school, it was one of the poems most often memorized. Well, at any rate, it was an amazing war because of the alien issues that entered it. Russia declared war on Turkey because of the persecution of Christians and also, to hopefully, to open up Jerusalem, then in Turkish hands, to pilgrims without uh, the pilgrims being subjected to um, various acts of violence against them. Now, it was Russia on one side, Britain, France, Turkey, and Sardinia, then an independent country, a raid on the other side. Well, this point that uh, Goldberg makes, I think, is very revealing. 
the British commander was Lord Raglan, who had not fought since 1815 in the Napoleonic Wars when he commanded troops against the French in Spain. And all through the Crimean War, he, uh, it is said, had, and I quote, an incurable habit of referring to his enemy as the French. Of course, since then, armies have cleaned up their leadership so that we don't have incompetence of such a terrible scale. Apparently, we now use the incompetence in politics. Well, there's a great deal more in this that I think is fine. For one thing, the Nobel Prize some years ago was given to a scientist for a particular type of uh, treatment and surgery, and uh, nothing is ever mentioned of that now because it turned out to be such a disaster. <laughs> so the Nobel Prize Committee does not have uh, the best wisdom in things. This I liked too. Uh, Charles Goodyear, who of course is a well-known name now, Goodyear Tires, worked for years and he sacrificed his family's finances and his own health in a way that would make rubber heat resistant and therefore a practical, usable material. He kept promising his wife, who was getting weary of trying to make ends meet on next to nothing, that he would stop tinkering with rubber and get a job and feed the family and then in his spare time work on his rubber experiments. Well, one day Goodyear was working on a batch of rubber and his wife went out shopping and he was mixing rubber with sulfur when he suddenly heard her returning home. So, scared that his wife was going to jump all over him, he grabbed the stuff and stuck it in the oven which was still hot. So, Quite accidentally, he discovered how to vulcanize and use rubber. So it was his fear of his wife exploding all over him that made him put it in the oven and accidentally find the heat-resistant material he had long sought, vulcanized rubber. <laughs> That was one instance when uh, a wife's nagging created an accident that made them both very, very rich after they had been in so much poverty. Well, Goldberg has a list of uh, Shakespeare's blunders. Uh, here are a few of the errors in the works of Shakespeare. In Julius Caesar, 
Shakespeare has one of the men refer to a clock striking the hour. And that was 1,400 years before clocks of that sort were invented. In Hamlet, the ghost uh, talked like a Catholic. He spoke of purgatory and absor uh, absolution. But when the play took place, the Danes were neither Protestants nor Catholics. The setting of the play was in pagan Denmark. He also wrote of the beetling cliffs of Elsinore, and there are no cliffs there. And in the Winter's Tale, he says that the vessel was shipwrecked on the coasts of Bohemia. Well, Bohemia has no coasts. He has a number of uh, blunders there. Uh, Delphi is a city, but in Coriolanus, Shakespeare spoke of it as an island. So he did not have the benefit of the good schooling that you provide in our Chalcedon Christian School. Oh, and he mentioned, by the way, billiards in Antony and uh, Cleopatra when there was no such game in that time. Uh, he mentioned cannons in the King John play. No cannons, only bows and arrows then. And uh, turkeys in uh, the first part of Henry IV. And turkeys were unknown at that time. So, Shakespeare was a great dramatist, of course, but uh, he was a bit uh, wobbly on his schooling. And uh, there are other errors that other great uh, writers made. For example, Daniel Defoe and Robinson Crusoe. As Crusoe strip naked and swim out to the wrecked ship and prowling around he finds some biscuits and he puts them in his pocket <laughs> which is pretty hard to do if you're stark naked and uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in writing about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson uh says at one point that Watson had a wartime bullet wound in the shoulder. He had forgotten that he had previously said it was in his leg and he was a bit limpy because of that. The poet John Keats wrote the famous poem, a beautiful one, on first looking into Chapman's Homer. And he speaks of Cortez discovering the Pacific Ocean and as you know, he did not. Balboa did. Uh, Sir Walter Scott in Ivanhoe uh, gives a character two different first names. He calls him Richard uh, at one point. This is Malvoisin. It calls him Richard Malvoisin. Another time it's Philip. So... Uh, Leo Tolstoy in War and Peace has Natasha at seven 
18 years of age in 1805 and 24 years old four years later. She grew seven years in four years. And he made other blunders as well. And uh, Eugene O'Neill in one play speaks of a one-armed character in the stage directions sitting at a table resting his elbows, his chin, and his hands. Pretty hard for a one-armed man to do. And, of course, the poet Virgil and the Aeneid had two people die and then reintroduce them later, forgetting that he had killed them off, or that they had died, rather. So, some very great people had uh, some terrible blunders. Mark Twain did that even um, more recently. I I believe it was in Huck Finn. It was believed that... um, well, so the uh, experts say he put the book aside for a number of years, not knowing what to do, how to resolve the the, the, the story of, of, of course, the problem he got himself into. Jim was trying to escape from slavery, and they, they missed the Ohio River, and they were going deeper into slave territory, and he set the book aside for some time. And when he brought back, uh, came back to it, a de- one of his descriptions of one of the characters was quite different than an earlier description, and he never caught it. Sorry. Well, uh, he has uh, a number of interesting things about important people making blunders. Uh, Einstein, of course, uh, really blundered, he says. He made a double error. And uh, a a schoolboy error in uh, algebra, what Einstein did was divide by zero during his calculations. A no-no in mathematics. Uh, When a Russian mathematician, Alexander Friedman, pointed out the error to Einstein, the missing solution to the expanding universe popped out. At any rate, as he goes on to say, uh, he wouldn't take correction on it. uh, And he actually said, to admit such possibilities seems senseless. So he stuck by his errors. Well, In 1978, not too long ago, Random House published a cookbook and it had a potentially lethal mistake in it. Uh, The title of the book was Women's Day Crockery Cuisine. It offered a recipe for caramel slices that left out by mistake one simple ingredient, water. It was soon found out that if the recipe were followed as he, as the book said, a can of condensed milk called for in the book could explode. Random House had to recall 10,000 copies of the book because of the hazardous lapse. <laughs> that would be an amazing caramel cookie. 
And of course, they have uh, uh, Goldberg has a section on uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. More than 600 articles in one edition which were outdated. These are the uh, 1958 and 63 editions of the uh, Britannica. Dr. Einbinder discovered myths presented as fact, legends presented as truth, errors in dates and statistics. And he found obsolete articles that came from the Ninth Britannica of 1875 to 1889. And he put out a 390-page book exposing the errors. But uh, they never uh, did anything uh, to answer him or uh, to make corrections. So... uh, Even the mighty have their weaknesses. I should go on to another book, but I enjoy this so much. I I read it recently when uh, I needed uh, something to relax me. But this, uh, in 1941, in World War II, the British warship Trinidad was in Arctic waters, and they saw a German destroyer. So they fired a torpedo at it, but they did not account for what the icy waters would do to its steering mechanism. So the water uh, affected it, and the weapon began to curve slowly in an arc, and instead of going after the German destroyer, It curved until it began to head back (laughs) to the Trinidad. And uh, within moments after being fired, it slammed into the ship that fired it. And the ship was so damaged that although it uh, stayed afloat, it never saw action again during the war. That must have been an awful experience for the crew and especially the captain. That was the U-boat that fired? No, it was a a British warship firing at a German uh, destroyer. So that was uh, in 41, early in the war. Now... you know about the Aswan Dam. Mm -hmm. But here are things I'd never read about it because there were such marvelous articles in all the periodicals, a miracle of uh, uh, technology and so on, and how all those huge buildings and monuments were moved uh, at incredible expense. And I think there was international help on that to another site. Well, it was intended to be one of the greatest feats of modern science and engineering to bring more fertile land into uh, cultivation and higher income 
for the country. But the lake formed above the dam made the Nile spread out so far and wide and not too deep that uh, tremendous amounts of water in that hot country were lost due to evaporation rather than being made available for power generation and watering the valley below. Only four of the ten turbines were being powered and only half of the land was being irrigated. Moreover, the water that was available was very high in its salt content and it compelled farmers to leave their lands. The dam on top of that promoted disease. Uh, a particular type of disease spread through blood flukes began reaching epidemic levels. They were propagated because of what the dam had done. Moreover, the sardines from the Mediterranean Sea no longer entered the mouth of the Nile, and another industry was wiped out. But most of all, the Nile flooded every year, overflowed its banks, and the people were used to it and used the waters because the waters brought down topsoil from the high country, but now they had to buy chemical fertilizers in order to do what the Nile had done naturally for thousands of years. Now here is a terrible thing. And, and chances are it'll be silting up. Yes. And then if they and then if they destroy the dam and they have all that silt backed up, it'll it will just clog the channel further downstream. Yes. It it has been a disaster, a major disaster. Well, uh, another thing that really uh, struck home to me. And in fact, I'm, I put uh, one or two of these things in random notes. I have been writing uh, in several areas of writing I'm doing on uh, evolution and how irrational it is, how it requires literally billions of miracles, all violating every thing we know about science, creation of something out of nothing, life from non-life, and so on, and in the beginning, creating out of a cosmic nothingness, supposedly, something. So, if you believe in evolution, you have to believe in billions and trillions of miracles. The whole point of the theory, and George Bernard Shaw said it, what it was. The world wanted to be rid of believing in God. Now it is interesting that Alfred Russell Wallace, with whom the whole idea originated, and who had shared his thinking with Darwin, who was a naturalist himself with many books and papers, 
to his credit, believed, not in God, but that there were spirits floating around who were responsible for making things evolve. Not God, but spirits somewhere up in space. Well, uh, let me see what else is there that I'd like to share with you. <laughs> this book is fun reading, or, and I picked it up a couple of times to laugh over some of the things in it. This, that in 1631 in London, an authorized edition of the Bible was published that caused a great deal of fuss because they found that there was no negative in the listing of the seventh of the Ten Commandments. It read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Of course, they had to suppress the Bible, and that particular printing came to be known as the Wicked Bible, and its printers, Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, were fined three thousand pounds, which I'm sure more than wiped them out, because in those days that was an astronomical figure. Of course, other Bibles in those days uh, were uh, guilty of errors. In fact, uh, in uh, Italy, a Bible that was to be presented to Pope Clement XI had a serious typographical error. The Latin word sine, S-I-N-E, without, had been printed throughout as S-I-N, sin. So uh, the poor man who did the translating when uh, the error was discovered, dropped dead of a stroke on the spot. He was so horrified. Well, well, to continue with Goldberg's blunder book, this uh, is a kind of inadvertent blunder. The social security system in the United States was copied from the German social security system, which Bismarck introduced. Bismarck felt the pressure of the workers and of socialism, and uh, so he decided to grant their demand for social security. And they did some serious thinking, and they found in those days, uh, which was uh, the last century, that most workers died before they were 65. So they chose 65 as the age when you would collect Social Security. And that meant that people were paying in and almost all the money would go then to the state. So it was a big bonanza for Bismarck's socialist state. And uh, the people had not tumbled onto the thing. Uh, the pension was to be up to one-half 
their salaries at 65. They knew, as I said, that most people in Germany, workers, did not live to age 65. So when under Roosevelt, they decided uh, to please the people, and they voted on Social Security. They figured they had a financial bonanza, that all this money would keep pouring into the United States Treasury. And of course, right off the bat, they started borrowing the money and just putting an IOU there, figuring they'll never collect. Now, I'm going to supply this because I this I know. Something was happening at the time. The films were very successful. It was the high point of the film industry from the 30s on to the early 60s. And what happened was that the film industry began to influence American culture and peoples in a number of ways. But one of them was that all the film stars were so diet conscious. Up to that point, it was just taken for granted that after you passed 20 or so, you uh, started putting on weight. I remember a cartoon quite funny. It showed the bride and groom coming out of the church uh, and the bride saying, Oh, good, now that we're married, I don't have to worry about watching my figure. Well, that was true. That was the temper of the times. But suddenly, Hollywood was making everybody weight conscious. And Hollywood diets were being published by women's magazines, home magazines, and uh, diets began to take hold for men also. And the result was men and women began to live longer because they were not getting heart attacks and strokes from being too fat. So <laughs> Hollywood sunk the social security system. Now, of course, they're in trouble, deep, deep trouble. Interesting, recently a poll of uh, young people, uh, very few expect to collect their Social Security. Right. I have a question about Social Security. Maybe you can answer. Uh, when uh, liberals often attack conservatives when they criticize that Social Security is not an insurance and it doesn't go into a fund, liberals will often respond that that was the original intention, that it was to go into a, a permanent fund as a retirement fund, but that the Republicans prevented that, and the Republicans insisted that it, um, uh, it be in effect as it is today. Well, Mother and I were young at the time. I think we both reached 20. And we can recall vividly, correct me if I'm wrong, Dorothy, that they promised first that your Social Security number would be totally private and nobody would have a right to know it. And second, 
that this was an insurance thing, that this money was going to go there and be kept. It was your money, and you were going to get it. Not too long after, the courts decided that it was a tax, not an insurance. So we were lied to. Now, at the time, a mother was telling people that it was a Ponzi scheme. It would never work. And I was telling people that I thought it was radically dishonest. And uh, they're wrong when they say that uh, the promises were uh, very different than uh, conservatives say they were. They have only to go to the library and consult the uh, congressional uh, records for that year. The debate, the discussion, everything. One of the things about Social Security that is rarely ever mentioned was that uh, fundamentalists in the country were very, very hostile, bitterly hostile to it. And I can remember old men talking about it in the streets and everywhere. Can you guess why they hated it? The Social Security number, Revelation, the mark of the beast. And they were predicting, these are old timers, no good is going to come of this. This is evil and satanic. They're going to destroy this country. And they were very, very intensely in earnest about it. And I don't think they were too far off the mark. Incidentally, it's still the case that your Social Security number is entirely private. You don't have to give it. In fact, to get a California state driver's license, the state of California will tell you, and the Department of Motor Vehicles will tell you that you do not have to give them your Social Security number. But if you do not, they will not issue you a driver's license. Yeah. And if you do not put it on the, on the form for the bank, they will not give you a loan or even allow you to have an account. So it's voluntary. <laughs> if you don't want to live in modern society. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm going to turn to another book. This one uh, published in uh, 1993, last year. Life in the Middle Ages from the 7th to the 13th century by Hans Werner Goetz, G-O-E-T-Z. A very uh, interesting book, and uh, it's going to be hard to refrain from uh, quoting it at great length. For example, he comments on the fact that uh, there were no exact ways to measure time, because if you did not have the sun shining, your sundial was no good. So the time of the day when it was not determined by the position of the sun was often uh, determined by the sound of the bells of a nearby church or of a monastery because at uh, 
various times they would uh, have prayer or a service. The monks, uh, both day and night, would uh, wake up to go to the chapel and have services. Uh, there were uh, primitive clocks of various kinds, but uh, basically they were imprecise. They knew the uh, exact number of minutes, hours, and so on, and Daytime and nighttime. For, to quote, scientific theory divided the hours very precisely into four points: ten minutes, fifteen parts, forty moments, sixty signs, and twenty-two thousand five hundred sixty atoms. And making an atom last exactly sixteen hundredths of a second. So they had uh, some knowledge of the length of time, the length of a year or the length of a day, but it was measuring it on an ongoing basis accurately that was the problem. Uh, but this does not mean they were indifferent to time. They didn't have a precise timetable, but time was very important to them because one's actions are governed by time. So uh, it, it is a serious mistake to feel that they didn't know much about time. Then uh, the interesting thing, he refers to it in passing, uh, cleanliness, bathing. A lot of mythology
came with the Black Death. The Black Death continued to the 17th century, in other words, the modern era and the Enlightenment. And a great many uh, of the doctors and others blamed the Black Death on bathing. Uh, open pores from bathing and that sort of thing. So people stopped bathing and it only started to come back in uh, in the last uh, two centuries. So we cannot project uh, the uh, enlightenment uh, age of reason uh, dirtiness into the Middle Ages. Then our uh, thinking can be colored by inadequate knowledge. For example, uh, the statistics tell us that there was a low life expectancy averaging between 25 and 32 years. Well, that's nonsense because they had an infant mortality of up to 40%. So if you have a lot of children dying, 40%, it's going to mean when you uh, put all these together that uh, the average person has a low life expectancy. As a matter of fact, this was true, a low life expectancy up to about 1900 in many parts of the Western world. And it was because of the high rate of infant mortality. Dealing with the common illnesses of babies and children uh, vastly increased the life expectancy because now as you averaged in everybody who died, you didn't have all those children's deaths to uh, reckon into your statistics. So we need to be careful when we uh, evaluate statistics because it can lead to the assumption that people were living a few years and dying. Makes it, you wonder how they managed to build those cathedrals all when they were dropping dead at 30 and 35. <laughs> yes. Yes. It doesn't make much sense. Well, the cathedral builders were young and old, and uh, even the elderly woman participated, because if the church were popular in that community, that is, the bishop and the priests being godly men, the people were intensely eager to see the cathedral go up. Well, it's still true in many poor, underdeveloped countries. You have a lot of older people because it's the children who are most susceptible to diseases. So even where they don't, when they still don't have um, proper medical care, once you survive ch- childhood, you're you're just as likely to live to be uh, a, a ripe old age as anyone in the West. Yes. Well. What Getz has to say about the family is uh, very, very good. He says the family was the guardian of morality. 
family was a law center. It was autocratically organized and it was focused on the husband, the man of the house. And it was a place where public and private spheres coincided. Now it is interesting that the father had a chair. The chair of the man of the house was passed on to his oldest son upon his death, together with all its rights and privileges, while the community of brothers remained intact as heirs in common. So, it was authority. It meant a great deal of care of the family, care of the mother, and so on. Meanwhile, the women were protected. This is something that uh, is virtually unknown nowadays. But uh, it's worth reading in some detail. The women could not hold public office, but they were very important and they were protected. He says that the low social position of women, meaning their inability to hold offices and that sort of thing, did not imply disdain. He goes on to say women were supposed to be honored in a special way and appreciated above all. And uh, it was only much, much later that misogynist statements uh, began to appear. A wife's a wife subject to her husband's mund under his authority was under him and his protection. So that, for example, they did everything to protect the wife from other men and their advances. There were very, for the time, great fines. For example, anyone so much as touching the finger of a free woman had to pay 15 shillings, big money in those days. If they touched her arm, the fine was 30 shillings. If they touched the elbow, it was 35 shillings. If they so much as touched her breast, 45 shillings. And anyone who uncovered the head of a free woman uh, against her will was fined, depending on the nature of it, three or six shillings. Lifting a woman's clothes to her knees drew a fine of six shillings. Anyone who lifted them up high enough that her genitals or her posterior became exposed had to pay twelve shillings. And a man who forced himself on a woman was assessed forty shillings and double that, eighty, if the woman were married. And Women in particular were under strong protection and pregnant women so that women had a highly protected legal status. 
something that uh, is not recognized today, then uh, the fact which he states very clearly is this, and I'll quote, according to Otto Brunner, all authority ultimately derived from household authority, a fact corroborated by substantial evidence. In other words, whether in church or state or any sphere of life, all authority was derived from household authority. That's quite a revolutionary fact. And, of course, very, very biblical. Fitting then that they would have royal families. What? Fitting that they would have royal families. Yes, royal families, exactly. Then, uh, this is an interesting statement, and uh, trying to see... This is uh, the king's advice, we are told. I have forgotten the king, and I won't take time to look. But this is what a king uh, said. Should you wish someday to court a truly fine woman in order to raise children with her, one that you will want to embrace gladly, then look for a wife in a respectable house, and only if your mother will have no objections against her. Once you have chosen her in this fashion, be sure to afford her every bit of honor. Be gentle and treat her well, but always remain her lord, so that she may never become contrary and start arguing with you. For there is no greater shame for a husband than being obedient to the one whose rightful Lord he is supposed to be. Women's work was also restricted. And uh, in the early medieval era, you had a biblical concept of dowry, whereas later on the pagan one came in, whereby the father had to pay the groom. But in the early Middle Ages, before the wedding, the bridegroom handed over the bridal gift, the so-called witum, dos, or dower. This was originally given to the clan of the bride, later the bride herself, who owned it in part as a kind of widow's insurance benefit. Among well-to-do people, the dower generally consisted of a piece of property with a house, storage buildings, land, animals, and serfs along with clothes and jewelry. Now, I find that very interesting because it was not only that dowry, but following the wedding night, the wife received a reward in the form of a morning gift, which also became part of the dower. So, uh, the era 
was not as uh, backward as people suppose. One thing which I found especially interesting because I've always read about, uh, since I was a child, how we got the names of our days uh, after various pagan gods. Uh, sun day, the day of the sun. Uh, Wednesday, Woden's day. Friday, Freya's day, and so on. But we find that uh, under Charlemagne, the month of May was called Winamonat, the meadow month, during which the animals were turned out to pasture. June was referred to as Brachmonat. July was Huamonat, and so on. I can't pronounce them. But they had very different uh, days, uh, names and month names that reflected everyday life rather than paganism. Well, uh, there are also some uh, delightful uh, stories to giving an idea of what people were like, he says the peasants should not be viewed as though they were down, downtrodden people. They were a proud and uh, happy people so that uh, they had no desire to be someone they were not. And they ridiculed those who were pretentious. So the peasants uh, were anything but uh, downtrodden uh, peoples. Well, I see our hour is drawing to a close, and I do want to continue this in the next uh, session, Mark, and then I'll go to uh, something else. But I think... This is a delightful story, and I enjoyed it immensely. So, uh, do you want to say something before we... No, go ahead. Yes, well, uh, thanks for listening, and God bless you, and I hope you've enjoyed this. I appreciate the fact that you do want more e uh, easy chairs on books, because I love doing these. Well, God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.